brothers and sisters, in the long run, uh, it is our desire as a church uh, to make much of the Christian calendar, to make much specifically of the celebration of Easter, the resurrection of Christ, which we anticipate celebrating uh, next week. Uh, Due to some limitations in terms of our scheduling and uh, our resources, uh, we decided that we wouldn't follow that calendar in terms of anticipating that day of Easter. Uh, But I want my message tonight uh, to serve that purpose. Uh, It would be great to have done a lot more. Uh, But tonight, this message, this meditation on Hebrews 9, and the finished work of Christ and what Christ has accomplished by His death... I want deliberately to prepare us as we anticipate uh, considering the resurrection of Christ next week. Brad has read from Hebrews chapter 9. The text that we'll be looking at is verses 24 through 28. The theme of the entire book of Hebrews, we might say, if we just had to narrow it down to a few words, to uh, one phrase, the message of the book of Hebrews is this, Jesus is better. Jesus is is better. Uh, now, now, quite often people will use that sort of phrase to say that Jesus is better than uh, uh, the pleasures of this world, or, or, or Jesus is better than uh, any achievement you could have in this life. That is certainly true, uh, but that's not exactly the focus of the book of Hebrews. When the book of Hebrews tells us about how much better Jesus is, he's talking about how much better he is in comparison uh, to the Old Testament system. The Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament uh, way of doing things. Uh, Christ is better than all of that. Jesus Christ himself is a better sacrifice than uh, uh, bulls and goats and sheep that were sacrificed in the Old Covenant. Jesus himself is a better high priest than all those uh, sinful priests of old who had to make atonement for their own sins uh, and offer up sacrifices not only for themselves but for the whole nation. They had to do it year after year. Jesus is better than they are. Because he offers up himself, and he did it once for all, and that sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God for all eternity. He's better than the priests. He's better than the sacrifices. He's become the seal of a better covenant with better promises. He offers a better inheritance than that which was offered under the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is better. That's the message of the book of Hebrews And we have that shouted out loud and clear in our text tonight in Hebrews chapter 9. Let's read it again together, verses 24 through 28. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to offer repeatedly since the excuse me, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Four simple points. Uh, to open up this text for you tonight. First, we want to see in this text a better mediator. A better mediator, and that will be in verse 24. Secondly, we want to see a finished sacrifice. It will be verses 25 through 26. Then thirdly, a certain judgment. 
found in verse 27. Finally, a sure salvation from verse 28. A better mediator, a finished sacrifice, a certain judgment, and a sure salvation. First of all, I'd like to show you a better mediator found in verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus is better, right? Well, in what way is Jesus shown to be better in Hebrews 9, verse 24? Well, 9.24 focuses on Jesus as a better mediator, as a better high priest. What's a, what's a mediator? A mediator is someone who goes between two parties, brings about a resolution, Uh, In respect to that relationship between those two parties, Jesus is a mediator who appears before us sinful men and women and before God himself. Uh, Jesus was also said to be the great high priest or the greater high priest. We don't use that language a lot. We don't have uh, priests in our churches, uh, at least not in Baptist churches. Uh, Who was the high priest in the Old Testament? The high priest was a designated individual called by God to represent the people of Israel before God, to basically act as a mediator between God and man. And the high priest, year after year, was told to come into the Holy of Holies, into the temple, and make sacrifices for the people of Israel. But he himself, being a sinful man, had to make sacrifices for his own sins, to atone for them. He had to make sacrifices also for all the nation of Israel. And he would sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats, and the hope was that God would see that sacrifice and that he would be satisfied to pass over the sins of God's people. That was the role of the high priest in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus is said in the New Covenant to be our great high priest, to be our mediator. And he's seen to be a better mediator, to be a better high priest. He comes between us and between God. And he is better than the high priest in that he doesn't have any sin. And he has no need to make a sacrifice for his own sin. And he's better than the high priest because he doesn't have to come year by year making a sacrifice year after year to renew that sacrifice before God. But rather, the sacrifice he made in himself and going to the cross satisfies the wrath of God forever. So you have this statement again and again in the book of Hebrews that he, he offered up himself once and for all. Meaning that this final work has been accomplished. That there's no need to do it year after year, again and again. But he's done this finished work, this finished sacrifice. And therefore, there's no need like those old high priests to come and appear year after year and to offer up renewed sacrifices. But rather, in his flesh, on the tree, by his blood, he accomplished the sacrifice once and for all. He's a better high priest in that he doesn't come into the Holy of Holies and to some set place, much like this room. But he appears before the face of God. And there in the presence of God, he intercedes for us. How encouraging is that, that as our great high priest, he's not hoping that his sins will be covered and that the blood of some lamb is going to satisfy the wrath of God. Rather, he stands before his Father and he pleads the merits of his own blood and he prays for you and for me if you're in Christ. The Lord Jesus appears in the presence of God the Father. And he has on his lips the names of his people. And he prays for them. And he pleads the merits of his blood for them. 
There's a few texts in the book of Hebrews I want to turn your attention to that show Jesus to be this greater high priest. Turn over, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 2. Just a few quick statements I want to direct our attention to to set our minds on Jesus as the better mediator found all throughout the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 through 18. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now flip over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 23 to 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Verse 24. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Ever. We could go on and on. I plan to read Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 15, which Brad read, and Hebrews 10, chapters 11 through 8. What's the point? Jesus is a better mediator. He's a better high priest. Whereas the priests of old were helpless to come to our aid when tempted by sin, Christ, our sympathetic high priest, is able to provide grace and help in time of need. He knows what it's like to be us. He knows what it's like to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities and our weaknesses. And he is able to represent us to God and help us in time of need. Whereas the priests of old were mortal and therefore had to be many in number, Christ lives forever and therefore can save to the uttermost. Whereas the priests of old had to make sacrifices for their own sin, Christ is spotless, utterly free from every stain of sin. Whereas the priests of old had to make sacrifices daily to account for the regular accumulation of first their own sins and the sins of God's people, Christ dealt with our sins once and for all when he offered up himself on the cross. Whereas the priests of old had to enter in temples made with hands, Christ appears before the face of God on our behalf. Whereas the priests of old took a bull, took a goat, took a lamb, cut it open, sprinkled its blood in the hopes that God would receive that, Christ shed his own blood. And he points to the merits of that blood for God to accept us and to receive us. And so our confidence, brothers and sisters, is in the blood of Christ and the finished work of the Lord Jesus. What I'm about to say, I want to... um, I want to uh, preempt, okay, with a qualification. 
Uh, some of you have family in Roman Catholic churches. Some of you uh, even come from a Roman Catholic background. Okay, let me say this. I hope you know this. If not, you need to know this. Not every Roman Catholic understands Roman Catholic doctrine. And so we can rejoice that God saves people with bad theology, that there are people in the Roman Catholic Church who believe the gospel. They didn't learn it from their church. They learned it from the scriptures. Okay, they learned it from some friend who shared the gospel with them. Okay, having said that, that God does have some of his sheep in the Roman Catholic Church, I want to say this. This whole point of appreciating Jesus' finished work on the cross is exactly where the Roman Catholic Church loses the gospel. Okay? Uh, The Roman Catholic Church teaches uh, that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is not sufficient in itself to save us from our sins. But rather, we have to continually maintain ourselves in a state of grace by offering up sacrifices of penance and by coming to the Lord's Supper where Christ is represented again as a sacrifice and where literally the Catholic Church will say uh, He is offered up again and we in a mysterious sense, physically take of his blood and of his flesh. Okay, I want to tell you today that is blasphemy. That is adding to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in offering up himself once for all in a way that satisfied the wrath of God. And so this is why in our church, we don't have a priest. We don't have a confessional whereby you come to make yourself right with God through confessing your sins uh, to a priest. I have Christ himself appearing before the face of God. Why would I need to go to confession? I have a great high priest and a mediator whose blood is sufficient to save me for my sins. Why do I need Christ to be offered up again on my behalf? Christ has offered up himself once. A finished sacrifice that we can't add or contribute to. It's a wonderful, glorious truth that once for all, in a final sense, the Lord Jesus Christ has dealt with sin. And so we don't add to that sacrifice by our good works. We don't add to that sacrifice by making penance for sin and by saying Hail Marys and by performing various rituals. Our faith and our trust is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel includes the finality of Christ's work on the cross to atone for our sins. And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, the blood of Christ is sufficient to atone for every stain of sin. And so you don't have to wonder or worry whether or not it was effective. Whether or not Christ's finished work on the cross really will atone for your sins and present you to God spotless and blameless and clean before His face. May God help us never to seek to add to the finished work of Christ. May God help us never seek a go-between between us and God except for Jesus Christ who is the only mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Now secondly... And more quickly, we've seen first a better mediator. Now in verses 25 through 26, I want you to see a finished sacrifice. And I've already alluded to this. A finished sacrifice. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has appeared, as the ESV has it, to put away sin by the sacrifice 
of himself. We have in this text a finished sacrifice. You might be familiar with Psalm 103, verses 11 through 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In the sacrifice that Christ has made, in going to the cross, in offering up himself, he dealt decisively and finally with sin, or as verse 26 has it, he put away sin by going to the cross and by sacrificing himself. So brothers and sisters, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sin has been taken away. And it's been put as far as the east is from the west, or as another text renders it, it's been cast into the depths of the sea. In Jeremiah 32, in the promise of the new covenant, what does God say? He says that I will remember their lawless deeds no more. That ought to be a rich encouragement to us. I don't know about you. My life, my past, my heart, my mind filled with lawless deeds. Filled with the stain and corruption of sin. As I reflect back on my relatively short life, I'm not very proud of my record. I'm actually quite ashamed as I reflect on all the ways that I failed the Lord Jesus. And all the ways I've sinned against God. And all the ways I've indulged my flesh. And all the ways I've loved myself. And all the ways I've invited Satan into my life to tempt me and to corrupt me. But the wonder is if you believe on Jesus Christ. If you follow him as his disciple in repentance and faith. He promises to remove every stain of sin. Put it away. And to no longer recall to memory our lawless deeds. What a wonderful promise we have in the gospel. All those things that make you ashamed. Gone. God's not holding them against us. He's not waiting for us to somehow atone for our evil, sinful, lawless deeds by accumulating maybe a a higher scale of good works. But he remembers them no more and he removes them, puts them away as far as the east is from the west. And so we can sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. When Satan tempts you to despair, and he tells you of the guilt within, this is what I want you to say to him. I want you to say back to him, Romans 9, verse 26. When Satan comes to you and tells you about all the wicked deeds that you've done, and all the, all the unclean thoughts that you've had, and all the, 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 the indulgence and sinful pride and self-love, and tries to uh, uh, make you unsteady by throwing your unrighteous record in your face, Speak back to Satan, Hebrews 9.26, say, My Savior, Jesus Christ, has appeared once and for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So why are you talking to me about my sins? He has dealt with them. Finally and fully, once and for all, the sacrifice is finished. And though we ought to walk in holiness, we ought to pursue Christ's likeness, that does not add to the finished work of Jesus. Our hope, our confidence, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so when you're 
tempted and tried. And when you're fearful about your sinful record, don't lose heart, don't lose confidence. God isn't looking at you. He's looking at Christ. He's looking at the merits of Christ's blood. He looks at His Son, in whom He's well pleased. And He's satisfied to look on Him and pardon you. He's not looking at you. When you see those evil thoughts and those evil deeds, plead the merits of Christ's blood, not the merits of your record and what worth and what righteousness you can bring to Him. I don't say this in any way to make us those who are not serious about holiness, not serious about putting off deeds of the flesh and putting on Christ. Look, if we're real, if we really are in Christ, we will put to death those things that displease Him. And we will seek to be more like our beautiful Savior. That's what it means to be a Christian, okay? But don't ever make the mistake of thinking that growing in Christ's likeness, obeying God's law, seeking to be well-pleasing to Him, that that contributes an ounce or a jot or an iota to what Christ has done on the cross. Our faith is always, brothers and sisters, in the finished work of the Lord Jesus and what He's done on our behalf. Let us never doubt that Christ's blood is effective to wash out every stain of sin. I can't tell you, uh, as a preacher, as I've gotten to preach in dozens and dozens of churches and had different opportunities to share Christ with different folks, I, I, I get so encouraged when I'm able to say in truth that it's not a fiction, it's not something I've made up, it's not fantasy to say to lost people that there's nothing you can do to disqualify you from the love of Christ. There's no evil deed that he can't forgive and cover with the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, for so many people, so many evil deeds in their background and in their past, that washes over them in such a beautiful and profound way that I could be right with God with all that I've done, that his blood is powerful enough to wash out every stain of sin. Can you imagine a more wonderful thought that your sins can be dealt with, that they can be removed as far as the east is from the west? All the things that make you ashamed will be remembered no more. They can be taken away, thrown into the depths of the ocean, and the promise is God will remember your lawless deeds no more. Now thirdly, we've seen first of all a better mediator in verse 24, a finished sacrifice, verses 25 through 26. Now, number three, a certain judgment. A certain judgment. And by that language, I don't mean, here we have a certain kind of judgment. Here's, here's one kind of, no, I mean a judgment that's sure, a judgment that is certain, a judgment that is coming. Verse 27, we have this statement. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, and then it leads into the major thought there. Verse 28, which we're going to consider in a second. But in an age that is determined to distract itself in every way from the subject of death and the subject of judgment, I wanted to commit a whole point to verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You kids, it's important to me that you, that you hear this now, and everybody in this room. There is almost nothing more sure in this life, in this world, 
that each one of us will one day die. And there is certainly nothing more certain than that all of us will face judgment. You can count on this. You will have to pay taxes, and you will one day die should the Lord tarry. Whether he tarries or not, you will face judgment. I hope you appreciate the force of this language. It is appointed unto each man to die. I believe there's literally, I should say figuratively, I believe there's figuratively a date in God's calendar for each one of us. There's an appointment. One day, should the Lord tarry, as sure as anything, each one of us is going to die. And yet in every way, our culture tries to distract us from that reality. And so you meet people all the time. You talk about death and they say, oh, I try not to think about it. You know, I'm focusing on the here and now. I just try to, try to push that off as much as possible. You'll meet people in their 80s and 90s. When you start talking about sickness, you start talking about death, they get very uncomfortable. They don't want to talk about it. They change the subject. As, as though they're going to live forever. As though somehow, uh, just by not thinking about it, they can put it off a little bit longer. They don't want to think about death. They certainly don't want to think about judgment. But here it is in our text. It is certain. It is appointed under every man and woman to die once. And then to face judgment. I want us to feel the gravity of that. The solemnity of that. Each one of us will stand before God. Give an account for what we've done. As we're going to see in a minute for believers, that's going to be a glorious day. It'll be difficult because all our unrighteous deeds will be in the open. And I believe Christ then will make it known that His blood has covered those sins. It'll be a glorious day for Christians. But for those who are not in Christ... The descriptions in Scripture are truly horrifying. You have these descriptions of of those who are standing in the judgment, who don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and what are they doing? They're praying for the mountains to fall on them and cover them. They don't want to stand before the Lord and have to give an account for their sins. And how could they? If they don't have the sort of mediator that I spoke about a moment ago, If they don't have someone who's appearing before the face of God as an advocate and pleading the merits of His blood in their place. I'll tell you what, if I had to stand before God outside of the righteousness of Christ, I'd be doing the same thing. Praying for the mountains and the hills to fall on me, to get away from the presence of God who is a consuming fire. But by God's grace, He has given me the blood of Christ that covers my sins. And so in that day, when I stand before the Lord, there's this confidence that Christ will appear as my advocate and my mediator. And so I could stand in that day, be welcomed into the paradise of God and receive through the blood of the Lord Jesus. But for you who are outside of Christ, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? When you stand before God, what will you say? What excuse will you give? Who are you going to ask to stand in your place? There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Your parents can be no help to you on that day. Your pastor, as much as he may love you, will be no help to you on that day. Your friend, your spouse, will be no help to you when you stand in the white, hot, glory and justice and judgment 
of God. Isn't it a mercy to you that he's given you the opportunity now to come to Christ and to call on him as your mediator, as your advocate, as your great high priest, to believe the gospel. Come to him in repentance and faith, and you'll have no need to fear that day. You can say like the apostle Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because then I will be in the arms of my Savior in paradise for all eternity. Make no mistake, it's appointed unto every man wants to die. And then the judgment. And now fourthly and finally... For those who are in Christ, we have a sure salvation. A sure salvation. A better mediator, a finished sacrifice, a certain judgment. Fourthly and finally, verse 28, a sure salvation. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Depending on what translation you have, at Emmanuel Church, we normally read from the ESV. Okay? ESV is not a perfect translation, but it's a reliable one. So if you're reading that, good for you. Continue. Okay? There are other good translations out there that we'd recommend, like the New King James, like the NASB. The NIV is okay, though I have some reservations. If you're reading from any one of those translations, you might be reading something like this. That Christ... Uh, appears different ways, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, maybe not with reference to sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him, or to receive salvation as those who eagerly wait for him. The ESV says that he will appear a second time not to deal with sin. Most translations will say something like, that he will appear a second time without reference to sin, or not with reference to sin. Well, what's the idea here? The idea is that Jesus came once, right, already. What did he come to do when he first came? It was specifically to address the subject of our sins and how we could be made right before God. Though the ESV supplies more than what's in the original language, I think the ESV gets it right. When Christ comes a second time, which is someday in the future, appointed that only Christ and Holy Spirit, God the Father, no. When Christ comes again a second time, it's not going to be about offering up a sacrifice for sin. With respect to his people, it's going to come to save them and to deliver them. Well, what do I want you to see there? I want you to know this. There is no unfinished business with Christ. He said, it is finished. The sacrifice has been offered. Sin has been dealt with. And he's not going to add and build on that work when he comes a second time. And so unless someone reading this letter in those days, the book of Hebrews is reading this and they're thinking, well, he's coming a second time. What's the point of all that? Did he not finish the work on the cross? No, he's not coming with respect to sin that second time. He's not coming to deal with sin. He already did that on the cross. When he comes this time, it'll be for salvation. It'll be like a bridegroom embracing his bride in his arms And he'll come for his people. And he'll deliver us into the paradise of God. When Christ appeared the first time, he dealt decisively with sin. There's no unfinished business. It has been dealt decisively. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. And when he came the first time, he came to address the matter of our sins. Now it's dealt with. But when he comes again, it'll be to ransom his bride. To bring us to himself. To give us salvation and deliverance. 
You might ask yourself, what are we doing now? We've already been saved, and yet we're not in heaven with Christ. Our sins are not completely done away with. What are we doing now? We are in this period now where we eagerly await the coming of Christ. A day when He comes to bring salvation fully and finally. Well, what are we to do as God's people? As those who are eagerly waiting for Him. What does it look like to be those who eagerly wait? I have three points I want to share with you. What does it look like to eagerly wait for Christ? And this is our application for tonight, and then I'll close our time in prayer. How should we walk as those who eagerly wait for Christ? You Christians here, let us walk in such a way we will have no cause to be ashamed when Christ returns. What does it look like to be eagerly waiting for Christ? To be like a bride waiting for the bridegroom to come? Well, one thing it'll look like is that we'll be those who are not caught doing those things that we would be ashamed of. May we be found walking in holiness. May we be found walking in Christ's likeness. As those who are eager, looking for that day when our salvation will come, let's be found looking like the Lord Jesus and growing in the faith. Secondly, what does it look like to be those who eagerly await Christ? Let us be diligent and watchful and prayerful as we await Christ's coming. Remember the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? They fell asleep. They weren't watchful. They weren't praying. As we sang in that hymn a moment ago, child of weakness, watch and pray. We ought to be people who are watchful, anticipating the coming of Christ, praying as we see that day approaching. Praying for ourselves, praying for the world, praying for the lost, praying for the cause of Christ, and earnestly anticipating His coming again. Thirdly, as we anticipate Christ's return, may we be found working to build His kingdom and to convey His gospel. What does it mean to be eagerly waiting for Christ? It means to be busy about our Father's work. It means to be busy about spreading the gospel and building the church, doing good works, and seeing people brought into the family of Christ. If we're eager about that kingdom to come, if we're awaiting that kingdom to come, we'll want to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it looks like to be eagerly awaiting the coming of Christ. And I'll just say this. Your posture toward the coming of Christ is a test. It will expose your character. It will expose what you love and who you love. Do you look forward to that day? Or would you like to see that day put off as far as possible? Are you like a bride, earnestly waiting for the return of the bridegroom, who, who, who when she hears his footsteps coming up the door, jumps up with enthusiasm and excitement and rushes to the door to open it up and to see her bridegroom come and return to her. Is that your posture? Or have you grown lazy, fat, sitting at home, not thinking about the bridegroom to come, but on the couch, watching Netflix, not really concerned about when your bridegroom will come again? Or are you earnestly waiting, eagerly anticipating the coming of Christ. If your heart is to see Him come and to return in His fullness, odds are you are in Christ. May we be those who earnestly anticipate the coming of our Savior. And may those of you who would seek to put off that day as far as possible, may you come to Christ 
Find in him your all in all. And may that day be a day where you too receive a sure salvation. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful truth that the work is finished. That Christ has gone to the cross, that he has borne the wrath of God. And that he has provided a sacrifice in our place so that we don't have to suffer the wrath of God and punishment in hell for all eternity. But that all those who believe on him and the sufficiency of that sacrifice could be saved. We could be received. And we can anticipate that when Christ comes again, it will be to save us once for all, to deliver us, to draw us into paradise forever with Him. We earnestly pray that for all those here who don't know the Lord, that they wouldn't put off that thought that it's appointed unto men once to die and then to face judgment, but that you would give them an unrest. You would not allow them to escape that thought. I mean, in anticipation of their death day and of the coming judgment, May they cry out to Jesus and find in Him a Savior who's ready to deliver them from death and from sin and from judgment. Today they can have the gospel. May you work in their lives to bring about repentance and faith. Make us a people, Father, as a church who anticipates the coming of Christ and as we eagerly await His coming and anticipate that day, may we be found unashamed going about our Father's work, being up and doing and advancing the cause of Christ in the world. And now would we be remiss if we did not pray, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.